This morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage this morning as we come to study it. Lord, it is rich in so many ways. And there is so much gold in this passage, Father, and we just pray that your spirit can move our hearts and minds to be able to see your wisdom and see, be able to see your sovereign plan in the calling of humanity. And Father, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of you and be glorifying unto you, for it is in Christ's precious name we pray, amen. So as we dig again into this 18 through 25. I want to go back just a little bit and look at last week. And last week we saw and studied how Paul exhorted us as Christians to be united, to be together in one voice, and to not engage in quarreling or disputes over non-essential matters. And we've covered that a lot especially in Romans, as to what non-essential matters was and what that makes up. But again, Paul was telling us that should be what sets us apart as Christians from non-Christians. Non-Christians dispute and quarrel and fuss and fight all the time. But in order for us to be unique and for them to see that we're different, part of that is how we act with each other. And how we don't fuss and fight and argue and quarrel over the pettiness that the world takes to heart. How we are united in one voice. The church at Corinth was divided for a litany of reasons, and we're going to see those as we traverse through this this book. But the very first one, or the source of that division, was they all thought that they were right because they had and clinged on to a particular leader, right? And we saw that some clinged on to Paul, some to Apollos, some to Cephas or Peter, and others, they stayed on the straight and narrow, they clung to Jesus. But they all had these little groups, and they all broke off and splintered into these little groups, and they believed that they were doing the right thing, and those that clung on to whatever other team they aspired to be on were wrong. And we looked at that in great detail, and we saw how that's nothing but pride, and that I want to be the right, and I want everybody else to be with me, and if you're not with me, then you're wrong, and pride just kind of rears its ugly head, and as a source, or the reason that pride does so, or what it causes, is a great deal of division and strife in churches, and that's what Paul was 
warning against them not to do or warning them not to do that. And he sees this division and there was even a division based on baptism. And that some say, well, I'm following Paul because Paul baptized me. And we saw that Paul really didn't baptize hardly anybody at Corinth. Or I'm following Apollos because he baptized me and he did it right. And Cephas or Peter and Paul, I'm not sure they do it right. And so we saw the divisions and Paul was explaining to them how there shouldn't have been any division based on who baptized anybody. And he said, furthermore, I only baptized a couple, three or four of you, if that. And the reason being is that baptizing isn't that important, he's saying. He's saying, I spread the gospel message. I preach the gospel message. Christ and him crucified. That's what leads to salvation. Baptism doesn't lead to that salvation. It's a sign of what happens when you hear the gospel and accept it. And so he was downplaying baptism altogether to try to demonstrate and show them that the source of their division was kind of silly. We have a lot of division over silly things. We, I say, we don't, as I said last week, we don't have much in this church now. It may come, and we kind of had that warning last week. But if you think of times of division, many times it is over silliness. It's over something that really doesn't matter. And that's the point that Paul was trying to make them, to them. He's saying we should be of one accord, focused on Jesus, who is the perfecter and finisher of our faith. And as long as we stay focused, then we don't have to worry about getting sidetracked on these petty, silly little divisions. Paul then transitioned into how he preached the gospel and the manner in which he delivered the gospel. He noted that he did not come to them with eloquent words, fancy words, that he spoke really pretty plainly. And he delivered nothing but Christ and him crucified. And that was his whole way of preaching the gospel. We talked about last week that if Paul had been some great showman with eloquent words and and fancy showmanship, and then it distracts from the power of the cross. And it creates people looking at Paul and ignoring the underlying meaning of the cross. Unfortunately, I think that There is a risk of that, especially in today's churches throughout the country. I mean, you you can go to some services this morning and it's going to be like a big concert. That there's, you know, the lights are going to be off, there's going to be spotlights here and there, everything's going to be, you know, fireworks seemingly going off. It's just like a big concert. And all that stuff is a distraction and takes away from the power of the cross. And Paul didn't want to run that risk. And so he said, I claim to you to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. That misplaced adorance of Paul takes away the power of the gospel. And so that's where we are as we transition into this passage this morning. But we got to keep it in mind because it will have some effect on how we look at the passage from this morning this idea or notion that I'm not coming to you with fancy words or or some big show I'm coming to you merely with the gospel message it has the power in and of itself and so that is the beginning of the transition then into verse 18 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing 
but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul introduces us to two distinct groups here, two distinct groups of people. And those two groups are put into their places by how they respond to the gospel message. There is a group of people that believes that the gospel message is folly, is foolishness. And who is that group of people? He names them right here. Those who are perishing. We've got one group. We've got a group that laughs, that mocks, that scorns, that thinks it's silly for us even being in here this morning. And we've got another group of people. We've got this other group of people and this different group of people believe that the gospel or the cross is the power of God. It is, and we're going to see it is the wisdom and the power of God. And this different group of people, who are they referred to here? Those that are being what? Saved. So we've got those that are perishing, that believes it's folly, silliness, nonsense, it's a waste of our time. And we've got those who are being saved that believe that it is the wisdom and the power of Almighty God. So he breaks it down into two separate groups based upon how they receive the gospel message. Now we're going to see that these different groups and those that are being saved, that this is all part of God's plan and his sovereignty in that plan. And we're going to see that play out this morning in this passage. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and, I will, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So keep in mind, Paul says, I'm not coming to you with fancy words or a big show, big show to be put on. I'm, I'm coming to you with the gospel. And then he goes in and says, this gospel to those who are perishing is foolishness, is silliness, is laughable. But to those who are being saved, it is the power and wisdom of God. So that's the two groups. We're kind of going on forward as to some sort of foundation as to why he doesn't come to them with a show. Because if he comes to them with a show, then you would appeal to that first group, those that are perishing. And here we have God's plan. It's a quote from the Old Testament, actually a quote from Isaiah 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. People try to find and figure out God in their own minds, right? And they have since the beginning. They try to think that they can outthink God or they can know God and what he is based upon the wisdom that they gain from the world. Those that have discernment, I will thwart that as well. Said, You think you're smart. The words of God. You think that you're smart. You think that you've got everything figured out. Well, just when that wisdom reaches a pinnacle, I will destroy it. That's what God is saying. This is all part of the competition that we as human beings have with God. The same competition that started in the garden when Eve wanted to know and believe that she had a right to the same wisdom as God and so she ate of the fruit. That who is God to tell me not to do this, right? If I didn't know better, I would think she was an American. I have a right to eat of that tree. Don't tell me 
what I can and can't do. We continue to have that competition between man and God. And God says, I will destroy the wisdom of man and I will thwart the discernment of man. Why is that? Why is that? And it all circles back as to why you and I live and breathe. Why do we live and breathe? For His glory. For His glory. So if if our wisdom is paramount, then who's getting the glory? This guy. Right? You've heard me say it so many times. So when we think we can outsmart God and gain eternal life by, by doing something to deserve that eternal life, then He's going to destroy that wisdom. He's going to destroy that discernment. God says, no, I'm the only one that receives the glory for saving his people or my people. That's it. So God is destroying the wisdom of the wise or the wisdom of the world and the discernment he is thwarting. And then Paul asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? So this plan that God has put into place has done just that. And Paul asked these questions, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Those are rhetorical questions, but the answer should be obvious is they are perishing. They are in that group that is perishing. They are not in that group that are being saved. So these ideas and philosophies that man comes up with, they're in the perishing group. God is destroying them. So all the great thinkers and all the great philosophers and everything that they think is wisdom and smart and clever is foolishness in the eyes of God. He has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And we're going to see this carry over into the passage for next week as well. The great philosophers and thinkers of all history and all future, they cannot know God with their wisdom. They cannot begin to understand God and cannot know God. Instead, God gave us a message that is foolishness to those who think that they can know God through the wisdom of the world. is silly. To say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, that's foolishness to the world because they've created a God that all we got to do is do a little bit and try to be a good person, and we get to Him, right? We gain eternal life. So this idea or notion that Jesus is the only way, that's foolishness, that's folly to the world. As silly as it may be to those that are perishing, to those that are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God to eternal life. God took the worldly economy and the way that mankind looks at everything and stood it on its head. He inverted it, right? We all like this idea of we're going to work and do something to gain something and that's fine for man's economy God says you're not going to do that for mine you're not going to gain salvation by working hard to get there I'm going to give it to you through grace 
and the cross and the work of my son. Those of you that think that you can be so good as to gain that eternal life, no, it's not going to work that way. I'm going to give it to you free of charge. He turned everything upside down. Everything that the world values, God says is worthless. Everything that God values, the world thinks is worthless. He is the inversion of the world that man has created. It's the great paradox of Christianity. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, the world cannot know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So God took that worldly economy, stood it on its head, and then everything the world values God made worthless when it comes to eternity and the things that are important in eternity. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, verse 22. These next few verses are going to demonstrate the sovereignty of God's calling in a beautiful way. And bear with me as we will get to it because I promise you we will. For the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. So Paul begins this portion of scripture by looking at his fellow countrymen, the Jews. They demanded signs and wonders. If you are the Son of God, then do this. Right? Remember, on, even on the cross. If you are the Son of God, then get down from the cross. Come down from the cross. They demanded signs and wonders in everything. They believed that Jesus was not who he was. They believed that he was going to come and set up an earthly kingdom, and he was going to rule, and he was going to set them free from that Roman occupation. They believed him to be a far different ruler than what he actually was. The Greeks alternatively sought wisdom. We all know about the Greek philosophers and how they held themselves up so mightily in the ways of man and their logic and all the advancements that they made. The Greeks loved their philosophy. They loved everything about man's ability to think and be rational to the point that they worshipped man's ability to think and be rational remember Mars Hill in Athens it was in Greece when Paul went around and he was depressed as he looked around and there was altars to all these different gods and there was actually an altar to the unknown god just in case they missed one but the Greeks worshipped and sought wisdom above all else they believed that the wisdom was the key to everything in life So, in verse 23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. So, let's compare these illustrations. We've got making the lame to walk, having great wisdom and making advances through wisdom, and a person being executed on the cross. We've got three separate illustrations here, right? And if you look at it from a worldly perspective, and you've got somebody that cannot walk, and you make him walk, all right? There you got one. Or you've got some great 
thinker that comes up with some wonderful invention that was never thought of before in wisdom. And then you got somebody being executed on the cross from a worldly perspective, which would make a bigger splash. Probably the advancement or the wisdom. Definitely, secondly, would be the lame to walking. Clearly, somebody being killed on the cross would definitely come in third. Happened all the time. I mean, the Romans crucified thousands of people on crosses everywhere. It wasn't that big of a deal. So you see that the other two had a greater appeal than Christ being crucified on the cross. Preaching Christ crucified was a severe stumbling block to the Jews. Because as I said earlier, they didn't or they couldn't see how he was supposed to act and what he was going to do and what the Savior was going to do. It was also foolishness to the Gentiles or the Greeks. Silliness in their minds. How can a man who is flesh and blood come to earth as God? Really makes no sense, logically speaking, as the Greeks would say. Then to claim that he was raised from the dead? Yeah, that's even a farther fetch. That was just too much for the Gentiles to swallow. It was laughable to them. Now I know that the title of my message, those of you that caught it as we come through, was Confidence in Your Calling, and I've really not touched any of that, but bear with me, we will get to that as we move through the last portion of this. Just be patient. We're not covered verse 23 again because we need, to, we need it to deal with verse 24, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. Stumbling block to the Jews, folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. Now verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Christ is the power of, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I, we have stumbling block and folly to the Jews and Gentiles, but verse 24 gives us a group of people to whom the gospel message is the power and wisdom of God. Who is that group of people? tells us to those who are called right so there is power and wisdom of God to a specific small group of people that are taking out of the Jews and the, and the Greeks to those who are called notice that it doesn't say to those who respond to those who believe The power and wisdom that comes to the gospel message comes because there is a small group of people that are called. And I want you to see the sovereignty of God and salvation in this. It is all about this idea or notion of calling. That is the variable that Paul's dealing with in this passage. And you might say, well, isn't everyone called? Is it everyone called? I don't want to drag you too far off into the weeds, but in a certain respect, yes. If I share the gospel message, then I'm going to share the gospel message for everyone, right? That is a a general calling to everybody out there. It's not what Paul's talking about. There's a general calling and there's an effectual calling. Whenever 
Those that are called hear the gospel message, they respond. Always. Always. It's the point Paul's making. There are Jews and there are Greeks out there. It's a stumbling block and it's foolishness. However, God does something to a subset of that group and it becomes the wisdom and the power of God to all salvation. What does he do? He calls them. It's different than my offer of salvation, than Scott's offer of sharing the gospel to everyone. That's different. That's a general call. I have no power in that. The power of the call comes from the sovereign hand of God working in and through somebody to enable them to believe. That's the difference. And I hope that you were able to see that in this passage because that effectual call is so perfectly illustrated here. Effectual means that it's effective, right? He calls, you respond. It is not rejected. It's critical because Paul says there are people who are called both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles. So that's a subset of all of those who think that the gospel message is a stumbling block and foolishness. So without being called, everyone believes that the gospel message is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to everyone else. But the critical element here, the only thing that changes is the calling of God. So go with me a bit here. God created a plan whereby everybody in the world would believe that his gospel message was either a stumbling block or foolishness. That's his plan. That's what he created. And so then what did he do as a result of that? Then he calls people. And when he calls people, then it becomes the power and wisdom of God unto salvation. It would be like calling a deaf person on the phone and asking them, if they would want to come to dinner with you tonight. That would be silly, right? They couldn't hear you. It would be a silly thing to do. So God giving a message to a group of people that would not respond, would laugh and mock, would be equally as silly. But if you had the power, and we don't, but bear with me. If you had the power to give that person the ability to hear Give that person the ability to desire to have dinner with you. It all of a sudden becomes not so silly, right? So if you call that person and you give them the power to hear, you give them the desire to eat and dine with you, then it all makes perfect sense. That's salvation. That's the call of God. That all the world is deaf and do not have the ability to answer the phone, much less the desire to dine with God. So what does God do? He gives us the hearing and gives us the desire to dine with Him. That's what the call is. That's the call that changes our hearts, that changes our thinking. It has a supernatural power in it. It is a miracle of Almighty God. And that's what God has done. He has effectively, effectually called us. That is the sovereignty of God 
and salvation. Since he has called us by giving us the ability to understand and the desire to respond, we respond. And we see the gospel message not as a stumbling block and not as foolishness, but as the power and wisdom of God. It sort of points back to Romans 8.30, doesn't it? That we went over a couple years ago. Very beautifully back to Romans 8.30. And those he predestined, he what? Called. Called. And those whom he called, he justified or saved, declares just. And those he justifies, he glorifies. This is the unbreakable golden chain of salvation. He predestines and he calls. And all of those he calls, he saves or justifies or declares just. And all those that he saves, he glorifies. He loses none. None. There's nobody that checks out in the middle of this chain. He doesn't call a few and then lose 40% and then the other 60 make it through to the next round and then finally you get down to the 5% at the end that make it to heaven. It's not how God works. If he worked that way, I wouldn't be at that 5% that makes it at the end. God's effectual call creates what it demands. I'll say it again. God's effectual call creates what it demands. It creates faith and it creates obedience. If you have no faith, you are not called. If you have no obedience, you are not called. You are not saved. God's call creates the requirements of its own. It's that simple. When the calling of God creates what it demands, who gets responsibility for that salvation? God. God. We, it's not us. It's 100% of God. So when we stand before him, who are we glorifying? We're glorifying him and him alone. Because he called us, he perfected us, and he's going to finish us. That's the confidence that we can have in our calling. And it all circles back around when I ask, for whom were we created? We weren't created for ourselves, people. And in this day and age, it's hard for us to understand that. We think that we were created to enjoy life the best that we can and and spend a little time on Sunday in church and at the end of all this and we continue with our enjoyment. No, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him not glorify ourselves and enjoy everything that we can usurp in this life. So when God calls and he gives us everything that we need for that eternity, he alone is glorified in that calling. I want to show you, as I close, I want to show you something else about this calling that is absolutely beautiful. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So when he calls, he doesn't get you halfway there and say, hey, I don't think I want Scott anymore. Right? No. They're irrevocable. He's not going to take them back. That's his promise. It's not my promise because if it's my promise, then there's a likelihood that I may break it. But it's God's promise to us. When he calls us and we see the power and wisdom of God in something that the world sees as foolish, that's proof that we've been called and that calling is irrevocable 
I hope that there's confidence in this message. I hope that you can see the confidence that we should have in our salvation, in our relationship with God. He gave us salvation according to his perfect, sovereign plan. He gives us a relationship with him such that we can be confident in that, that we can glorify him because of that. So as I close, look at the gospel message for yourself. Ask yourself how you view that gospel message. Because there's a flip side to it. If you view that gospel message as foolishness, as silly, as folly, or if it's a stumbling block to you that you just can't get across, now would be the time to look at your calling. Examine your calling. The Bible tells us that we are to work out our salvation, to make our calling and election sure. Everything that we need when God calls us, He gives us. He gives us faith and He gives us obedience. So have confidence in our calling. Don't be scared day to day, but make sure you're standing on solid rock. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these deep thoughts of Paul, these notions of your perfect sovereign plan in each one of our lives. Lord, we thank you that while we were yet dead in trespasses and sin, that you call us that you create life from death and that you call us out of death into life in the same manner that Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. That what your process requires, you give. Your calling requires faith and obedience and you give that to us, Father. We thank you for that and we glorify only you here this morning. We don't do that out of any sense of pride, but out of a humble sense of gratefulness that you loved us so much that you gave us your only son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. May you be glorified in our lives this morning and forever. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All rise. John, if you could play the next one, I'm... I can't get in it for some reason.